pray together. Father, we're grateful for our time to gather here this morning to reflect on your character, to reflect on your eternality. Lord, those words that we just sang are so, so true and they're so powerful. The reality of the fact that you've had no beginning, you will have no end, but yet we are like a, a vapor, a mist. Our life on this planet is, is so short in comparison to the fact that you are eternal. Father, help that to bring our hearts before the throne in worship as we reflect on how awesome and how, how vast, how great our God is. Lord, we get so caught up in our own perspective of things and our own worlds and sometimes get overwhelmed by the things of this life. Lord, help us to turn our eyes to you, to set our sights upon Christ that our vision of God will be greater and will help us to see life for what it is, an opportunity to, to serve you, an opportunity to enjoy the things that you've given to us and help us to see that our time on this earth is short and we must, must respond to the gospel. We must come to you on your terms through Christ so that, that our life won't go on forever separated from God in hell, but our life will go on forever in the presence of our Savior in worship and adoration for all of eternity. Father, direct our hearts now to the Scriptures. Thank you for our time together. Thank you for this privilege we have in Christ's name. Amen. It's good to see you guys. It's good to see several of you who are back uh, for, the, for the summer. I'm sure being done with the semester is wonderful, and uh, those of you who, who uh, still have a week or two left or more than that, God's grace to you. Hopefully it will go quickly and you will be um, able to celebrate another season of life being done. You know, the, the seasons of education for me, I was very excited when that was finished. So I never really, I think, enjoyed any part of school except when I got to seminary and then I realized I wish I would have paid attention more in regular school. So, all right, Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. The next few weeks, we're in the month of May, heading into the summer. And this summer, Garrett will be uh, taking good care of you guys. He is going to be running uh, the Roots Group for several weeks. Well, for the entirety of the summer, I'll be gone for several weeks. But, but he will be taking good care of you, and he's going to lead you through a study along with a couple of uh, other guys through the Upper Room Discourse in John chapters 13 through 17. So that'll be, 
very, very helpful and uh, hopefully refreshing for your souls. But until that time, we are going to uh, do a couple of things here in this month. I'm going to do a couple things regarding what it means to be a biblical church. If you remember several months ago, and, and actually in years past, I've, I've come back to what it is to be a biblical church a handful of times. But back in January, I started um, that year, I started our time together in the new semester with the reality that a biblical church is a converted church. Um, and we looked at Acts chapter 2 for a couple weeks and and saw how that fleshes out, that those who are truly a part of the church, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, are those who are in Christ. They are those who have a relationship with God through Christ. They have repented of their sins, and they have turned to faith, or turned to Christ in faith. You know, we come here on Wednesdays and Sundays. We gather corporately as the body of Countryside Bible Church on on Sundays together, and just attending any of these events doesn't mean you are in church. If you are in the church, you are a true Christian, and you get to come gather with other Christians, and, and this is the church. It is a body of believers, and, and so we, we looked at that, and that was obviously several months ago, but over the next few weeks, so today and Wednesday, we're going to talk about the reality that a biblical church is a worshiping church. And then uh, we're going to do a couple other things. I think Jobin's going to be with you for a couple Sundays. I've got some things happening, and so he's going, to be, he's going to be with you on a couple Sundays. And then at the end of the month, right before we go into summer, um, we're going to talk about the reality that a biblical church is an evangelistic church. Um, I'm very excited about all of these messages, and it's just good to get back to the basics in some of these things and to be reminded of who we are as the body of Christ. And so that's kind of a little roadmap as to where we're going over the next several weeks. But, but I want to, uh, as I said, bring you a message this morning entitled, A Biblical Church is a Worshiping Church. And so hopefully you have your Bibles open to Romans chapter 11. I'm going to read our text that we'll be covering today and Wednesday, <clears throat> beginning in verse 33 of Romans chapter 11. Paul writes this, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever." Amen. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may be able to prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, perfect. Well, next to the foundational importance of true conversion, because as I mentioned, without conversion, there is no church at all. The biblical truth is that a biblical church is also a worshiping church. When you think of worship, what comes to your mind? 
Is it music? We just spent time worshiping God together as we were singing. Other things can come to mind. Perhaps it's, it's bowing down. You think of many instances of that in the scriptures. We think of God, which is right and good. You might think of various idols that people bow to. Fundamentally, worship is the idea of giving, to, giving worth to someone or something. Giving what we believe is, is rightful worth. The worth that is due them. The honor that is due them. Worship is something that has caused great controversy over the centuries because of people misunderstanding what worship essentially is and because of personal tastes and preferences. And so it is important that we understand right off the bat this morning this essential truth about worship. And that is this, it is not something we do. It is not something we do. Paul David Tripp in his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, further explains this when he writes, Human beings, by their very nature, are worshipers. Worship is not something we do. It, It defines who we are. You cannot divide human beings into those who worship and those who don't. Everybody worships. It's just a matter of what or whom we serve. Human beings were created as worshiping beings. In fact, every moment of our lives is either an attitude, a, a word, a thought, or an action of worship of someone or something. For many... It is sports, money, power, prestige, relationships, sex, jobs, material possessions. The list goes on and on and on as far as things are concerned. For others, they worship another person, perhaps a a politician or a sports icon or a TV or movie star or a child or a spouse. The point is, is that everybody devotes their life to something or someone. Now, as believers, though at times we may fall prey to worshiping the gods of this world because of sin and deceit, we are fundamentally characterized by being worshipers of the only true God. Concerning this worship of God, I believe D.A. Carson provides an excellent definition of biblical worship. He writes this, he says, Worship is the proper response of all moral, sentient beings to God, ascribing all honor and worth to their creator. To their creator God, precisely because of who he is and doing it delightfully so. Worship is the proper response of all moral, sentient beings to God, ascribing all honor and worth to their creator God, precisely because he is worthy and doing it delightfully so. Certainly there are expressions of worship which I believe are to culminate in our meetings together of corporate worship through song and giving and reading the scriptures, through prayer, through the proclamation of the word, through fellowship, through the Lord's table, through baptism. But primarily, 
We worship God by the way that we live day in and day out. Our attitudes, words, and actions are to respond to God for who He is. As a church, we are to be defined by biblical worship of God. First and foremost, that is what is to define us as those who belong to Jesus Christ. We worship God, the God of the scriptures, the eternal God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is what I want to examine the next couple of weeks in our text, is a biblical approach to worship. This text that I read for us just a moment ago is divided up into two parts, with the second one being dependent upon the first. That word, therefore, in chapter 12, verse 1, functions as a a hinge, taking us from verses 33 through 36 to verses 1 and 2, and on into the rest of the book of Romans. And so this morning, as part one, I, I want to look at this first way by which we are to approach worship. And that is this, number one, the believer's priority in worship. The believer's priority in worship. I'm going to look again at verses 33 through 36. I'm going to read them one more time. I'm going to give emphasis Two particular words. I want you just to hear how God-centered this doxology is. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become His counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Eleven times God is referenced in these four verses. Do you think that Paul was trying to Make a point and draw our attention to something? Well, listen, this should go without saying. But in the man-centered, program-driven, consumeristic business model, greater evangelical church of our day, which is an inch deep and a mile wide theologically, it must be emphasized and re-emphasized that the believer's priority in worship is God. The triune God. And Paul is drawing our attention to that in these verses. These four verses are known as a doxology or a hymn of praise. Well, we know this because of the way in which Paul interjects at this point in his letter. He begins this with, oh, the depths of the riches. It just, you can see how he, he, he shifts to this, to this praise and this worship after spending Many chapters dealing with our salvation and the effects of our salvation. 
Well, why does he break into a hymn of praise right here? What spurs this on? Why is, why is Paul overcome with affection toward God? Well, the answer is found in both the immediate context and in the context of Romans as a whole. And if you've been here any time at all, you sat under Pastor Tom preaching through this book for seven years in a magnificent exposition on the book of Romans. And so you know that the overall context of the book of Romans can, can rightly be called the greatest theological treaty in the scriptures. In chapters 1 through 3, we see the condemnation of man put on display. In chapters 4 and 5, we see justification explained. Chapters 6 through 8, we see sanctification explained, both progressive sanctification and and final sanctification, which is glorification. Chapters 9 through 11, we see the vindication of Israel explained. In chapters 12 through 16, Paul then applies that theology that he has worked through to the believers' lives. And so, just as he is about to transition into this application portion of the book of Romans, no doubt Paul is overwhelmed by these truths that he has just put down on these pages. No doubt he is consumed with the reality of who God is. He is consumed with this wonderful gift of salvation that we have as believers. But more specifically, he is overcome with adoration for the God of grace and his sovereign choice in the matters of salvation involving both Jews and Gentiles. In chapters 9 through 11, Paul answers the question of what happens to these Jews who have fallen away, these Jews who have rejected Christ. What happens to the Jews? Didn't God make promises to the Jewish nation? And he goes through and he answers that and says that, and in that answer, he gives us the the purpose of uh, of Gentiles. That Gentiles have, have been given this role, in a sense, to make the Jews jealous. That's talked about in chapter 11. So that they would come to their Messiah. But in that overall scheme of God, we see the beauty that the gospel is offered to all. We see the beauty that God saves Jews and Gentiles. And we see his purposes come together and that God is not done with the Jewish people. That though he is working primarily through the Gentiles now in the church age, that one day through the tribulation, through the millennial kingdom, there will be a remnant of Jews. The end of chapter 11 Paul says, all Israel will be saved. There will be a a day when the nation of Israel at that point, when those who have come to Christ, that remnant will be given the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. They will be given land in the millennial kingdom. They will be restored to the place that God has given them. Paul is overwhelmed by this reality, just the faithfulness and and the promises of God. His love for his people who he called out through Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And his love for for the Gentiles, for, for all people. 
He's overwhelmed at the great plan of salvation that has been offered to mankind. And so, on the whole, he's grateful and he's worshiping God. He breaks into this doxology because of, because of the full gamut of truths there in chapters 1 through 11. But specifically, he's so thankful for God's faithfulness and his promises that are going to be kept to the nation of Israel and how he's using the Gentiles to bring that to pass. Paul is overwhelmed by the truth of salvation and the way God sovereignly orchestrates his plan concerning it. And so it is in this interjection of praise that that shows us how then we are to prioritize God in worship. And that's what I want to focus on with the remainder of our time. As mentioned a moment ago, the the focal point of this doxology is, is God. So so each of these verses, verses 33 through 36, describe God's character, his his perfections, and his ways. So this brings us then to the first way in which we prioritize God and worship, and that is this, this. We are to recognize the radical reality of who God is. We are to recognize the radical reality of who God is, and, and that radical reality is simply this. God is not like you. God is not like me. Though we try so often to fit him into our little box, to make this infinite God into our finite image, the the fact of the matter is, he is not like us. He is completely other. He is completely distinct from his creation. We see that clearly by Paul's verbiage here. He says, oh, the depth or inexhaustibility of of the riches of God concerning both his wisdom and knowledge. A man is unable to plumb the depths of the wisdom and, and the knowledge of God. Grammatically here, it is important to note that that wisdom and knowledge are what Paul is, is most strongly emphasizing. He wants us to see how extraordinary, ordinarily other God's infinite wisdom and knowledge are compared to our limited, finite wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom and knowledge specifically here should be understood as God's infinite knowledge concerning all the aspects of salvation and his ability to orchestrate that knowledge according to his sovereign will. Because contextually, that's what he's talking about. Paul is overwhelmed with the knowledge and the wisdom of God in regard to salvation. In regard to the salvation of mankind, both Jews and Gentiles. And now his plan is being carried out, how he has orchestrated it from beginning to end. Note that this wisdom and knowledge are, are possessed by God. Oh the, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. It's not man. It's not man's wisdom. It's not man's philosophy. It's not man's judgments. It, it's not man's understanding. This, this depth of wisdom and knowledge is of God. It is 
sourced in God. It belongs to God. It is possessed by God. A.W. Tozer says concerning says this concerning God's wisdom. He says, wisdom, among other things, is the ability to devise perfect ends and achieve those ends by the most perfect means. It sees the end from the beginning, so there can be no need to guess or conjecture. Wisdom sees everything in focus, each in proper relation to all, and is thus able to work toward predestined goals with flawless precision." Paul continues in his exclamation concerning the perfections of God by proclaiming how unsearchable God's judgments are and how unfathomable his ways are. The idea of, of unsearchable here is, is the idea of unable to, to bottom out. There's no bottom. It's just a, it continues to go farther and farther and farther. God's revealed judgments are so vast and so wide, and yet they are incomprehensible. God's sovereign scheme of salvation and both, involving both Jews and Gentiles brings Paul to conclude that this amazing grace and divine sovereignty, which he has just expressed in these chapters, is unsearchable, is incomprehensible. One writer says that Paul was like one who had just climbed an alpine mountain and reached the top and his, his doxology is his response to everything that he sees and that he has just worked through theologically. He's just climbed that theological mountain for 11 chapters and he gets to the end of chapter 11 and he looks back and all there is is this vast exclamation, expression of worship for who God is and what he has done. It is his judgments, God's fixed purposes of divine grace, his, his judicial decisions concerning divine election that, that Paul says are unsearchable. They are incomprehensible for our minds, thus proclaiming to our hearts the, the radical reality of God's otherness. He's already taken the time to unpack the theology of election and those things. That's not what he's doing here. He is reflecting back on those truths. And he is saying that they, they are so rich. They are so incomprehensible. They are so difficult for us to get our finite minds wrapped around. And that reality is, should cause us to worship God for his distinct otherness. The fact that he is not like us. Not only his judgments, but his ways. God's diverse providences by which he orchestrates and executes his divine will. Thinking about his ways is like swimming in the middle of an ocean. With no island in sight. They are so vast. These are lofty concepts. We're told by Isaiah that his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He operates on a level which is untraceable. 
It is unable to be traced out. That's what unfathomable is alluding to in regard to, to bringing his decretive will to perfect fruition. The, the, the will of God that he has orchestrated from before time began in the sovereign council of the Trinity is being carried out on this planet. And Paul is saying that this decretive will is being brought to fruition and us wrapping our minds around how he is doing that is untraceable. It's unsearchable. With Paul here, we are to realize that we are standing on holy ground. That is what he wants to emphasize as he is talking about the wisdom and the knowledge of God, his judgments and his ways, that, that they are so vast that they proclaim to us this mighty, sovereign God that is beyond our comprehension. This God that we are in the presence of, he is not to be treated tritely. He is not like us. A finite mind is unable to trace the thought process of the infinite mind of God. As you approach God in worship, both personally and corporately, are you doing so recognizing the radical reality of who God is? Is that fact, the fact that he is completely other and that that otherness is incomprehensible, is unfathomable, is that fact driving your heart and soul in worship of God? We know the flip side of the truth. The scriptures also proclaim the imminence of God. That we're, we're talking about the fact that, that God is incomprehensible at this moment in, in, in all of his ways, his thoughts, because he is completely other. God is also imminent. God also cares for us. He's also revealed himself in the scriptures to us. So, so we do worship him for that. But that's, that's not what Paul is talking about right here. Paul is wanting us to worship God for his complete and total otherness. that causes us to have a a healthy fear of God. To know that when we come into the presence of God, both personally and corporately, that we are coming to Him on holy ground. Yes, God is our friend. We're grateful for that truth. It's it's spelled out in the Scriptures that, that we don't have enmity with God anymore because we are reconciled through Christ to Him. But God is God. And we are not. And so when we come to him, in the ways that we come to him, through prayer, through opening up his word, through genuine fellowship with other believers, when we come to him and we open up our Bibles on our laps to read what he has revealed to us, are we coming with this 
kind of mentality. That God is unfathomable and unsearchable in his judgments, in his ways, and that he is so righteous, he is so good, and that he is so holy that all we can do is bow our hearts before him and offer our lives of service to him. Right? Are we approaching God like that? Do we have this radical reality of God in our mind? That he is completely and totally other. It's my humble opinion that we treat worship in such trivial ways. Being frustrated or turned off by personal preferences and external expressions. Friends, we worship God the living, eternal God who is completely other. And we worship Him by our hearts, our souls, and our minds being captivated by the radical reality of who He is. Paul goes on in verses 34 through 35 to ask three rhetorical questions, each demanding a negative answer and thus further expounding upon his statements in verse 33. So he's just declared these truths about God, that his, his ways are unsearchable, his judgments are unfathomable, his wisdom and his knowledge are so deep there is no bottom to catch them. They are eternal. So he goes on to, to clarify that even more. And here in verses 34 through 36, Paul dips into the Old Testament to prove Scripture with Scripture, which is foundational to proper hermeneutics. He he wants to further prove God's incomprehensible nature, first of all, by using Isaiah 40, verse 13, to show that God's infinite thoughts were were overwhelming to the uh, the prophets as well. Now, this is not a new concept by the Apostle Paul. He's not the first one to be overwhelmed with the reality of who God is. And so he goes back into the Old Testament to further bolster the statement he just made in in verse 33, saying that the prophets were overwhelmed by the ways and the knowledge of God. This use of Isaiah and other Old Testament texts are functioning as a witness to God's wisdom and knowledge. And of course, the answer to Paul's first question there, for who has known the mind of the Lord... Is no one. God's knowledge is, is infinite. Listen, there is a theology that is out there that, that kind of has gone in waves over, over the years. It's called open theism that you need to run from and bash and put out of your life every time it comes in. Open theism says that God learns as he goes and he adjusts according to that knowledge. Open theism denies the infinite knowledge of God. They say that he has a perfect way 
of gaining knowledge, but he is gaining knowledge on a regular basis as new things come into being. It's heresy. That's not the God of the Bible. That, that is not the God that we worship. That is not the God that Paul is declaring and proclaiming here in verse 34. This rhetorical question that he asks, who has known the mind of the Lord, demands that we say absolutely no one because he's incomprehensible. God knows every minute detail concerning all of eternity and he not only knows it, but he orchestrates it. So it's not just some random knowledge that God knows. It's not just that he knows the facts of everything, ever. It's that he's orchestrating every detail of everything that ever takes place through his unsearchable and unfathomable ways of doing that. His mind is infinite. Paul goes on, he says, or who has become his counselor? Again, this demands the negative response, no one, absolutely no one, no one gives God counsel. Why? Because he's not like us. No one devises and executes his plans. It is God alone in his providence who executes all of his plans according to his decretive will. Specifically here concerning the salvation of both Jews and Gentiles. God is not dependent upon anyone or anything. No one counsels or advises God. No one. You and I need counsel all the time. And hopefully you know that. <laughs> I'm becoming more, more and more aware of that every time I sit with other pastors on our staff. I'm like, oh, I should sit with you more often. <laughs> Learning how to live. We need counsel. We make bad decisions. We just spent four weeks talking about how bad decisions we make. Right? And looking what it looks like to, to make good decisions. Right? To think biblically. We need help thinking biblically. We need people to walk alongside us in our lives. To, to bring us counsel. To bring us encouragement. To, to, to bring us exhortation. To bring us rebuke. We need people to open up the word of God and say, listen. This is how you think about this. Or... This is a bad decision. You need to do this. This is a much better decision. You can see that in the scriptures. We need that. And, and if you don't think you need that, you need that. <laughs> it's not up for debate. We are dependent creatures, friends. We did not create us. Right? We did not speak us into being. We did not form dust of the ground and make man. We did not take the rib out of Adam and make woman. Nope. We were born into this world by God's plans that he devised and orchestrated and through the process that he put in place for that to happen. We are not the creators of our own destiny. We are not independent. We are dependent creatures. That's the point of this rhetorical question. God is completely independent. He, he needs no one to give him counsel. He doesn't start going a direction and have 
an angel or some other creature say, hey, Lord, just thought you might want to turn back this direction. No. No, when he made the foundations of the earth, when he spoke creation into existence in those six days in Genesis chapter 1, there was nobody looking over his shoulder, speaking into his ear. There was nobody helping him along in the process. God is his own counsel. (laughs) No one counsels him. He asks a third question. In verse 35, using Job as a witness, he says, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? Again, the answer is no one. God is a debtor to none. God is never and has never been the first recipient of anything. Think about that. Just think about it in terms of like a, a birthright. You think about the guys in the Old Testament, Jacob and Esau. Right? Esau was you know, not the sharpest tool in the shed. And so he decided to give his birthright to his brother because he was hungry, which we do stupid things when we're super hungry, so eat good meals. But, but he was very hungry. He gave his birthright away. But just that concept of a birthright. He was the first recipient, and he traded that to Jacob. Jacob became the first recipient of his father's blessings. God has never been the first recipient of anything. Nobody gives God anything first. And because of that, he owes nothing to anyone. He doesn't owe anything to anyone. We don't loan to God, putting him in a position to pay us back. We know that conceptually. But I think sometimes we try and bargain with God a little bit. I felt like I was kind of doing this last night. So I'm the backup for Tom. He was out of town. And he was flying in super late. I don't know what he was doing, but super late. So he texts me, he gets on the plane, hey, we're, getting, we're, we're leaving, but the weather looks iffy. Iffy. Like, my night is about to turn upside down if I have to preach big service tomorrow. <laughs> so I started thinking about that. I started, I think I was bargaining God. Or just let the plane land. And I promise this, or I promise this, right? Like, I, I will do this if you let him get here. I, I will do it. I felt that way. I, I don't think I was actually saying those things. I did throw up one of these when I saw the plane hit the ground on Flight Tracker. But, but we do that, right? We, we say, God, if I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this for you, you're going to do this for me. No. Well, we don't loan God anything. He doesn't have to pay us back for anything. God has shown mercy according to his desire and is not responsible to ever pay anyone back for first showing mercy to him. We weren't merciful to God. God is merciful to us. God is never put in a position of obligation by any person. Some of Paul's purpose to these questions, one writer said, God is a debtor to none. His favor is never compensation. Listen, You are sitting here today as recipients of the grace of God 
Believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, those of you who are in Christ, not because he is giving you compensation for something you've done. He's granted you grace, so his favor is never compensation. Merit places no constraints upon his mercy. He says the three rhetorical questions, all implying a negative answer, have their positive counterparts in the self-sufficiency, the sovereignty, and the independence of God. So Paul is declaring with these questions. Further building in our minds this big God that we are to worship as his church. Verse 36 then provides us the reason for the previous statements in verse 33 concerning God's infinite knowledge and wisdom. Why is this? Look at verse 36, for, for from him, for from him, meaning that first of all, God is the source of everything. All creation is sourced in God. Salvation is sourced in God. God is ultimately the first cause of everything. He's just, he's just explained that through his rhetorical questions. He's the recipi first recipient of nothing. He says, and through him, meaning that God is the ultimate agent by which everything is carried out in regard to this universe and specifically in regard to salvation. God orchestrates and brings about all things according to his sovereign will. And to him, meaning that, that God's purposes are the end result of all things which, which operate according to his will. One writer said, God is the first cause, the effective cause, and the final cause of everything. And Paul is caught up with this infinite, eternal, all-wise, all-knowing God whom all things are dependent upon. And we should be too bringing us to the second way that we prioritize God in worship, which is to rejoice with the only reasonable response to who God is. Look at the end of verse 36. It says, To Him be the glory forever. Amen. To Him, that is to God, to God alone, as the sole recipient, is all glory to be given to Him from his worshipers. God is too great to give our glory to another. He deserves all the glory to him alone because he alone is solely responsible for sovereignly bringing about the purposes of his decretive will, specifically in regard to salvation. To him alone belongs eternal worship. For the Christian, the only re reasonable response to God is to worship him alone with every aspect of our lives. And that's what we're going to see on Wednesday. I'll give you that second point. The believers practice in worship. We'll look at that on Wednesday. So, if we are going to continue to strive to be a biblical church, and 
more specifically in our context, a biblical college ministry, then we must be worshiping, then we must be a worshiping church whose priority in worship is God alone. Then this means that He must be the priority of our lives as individuals first. Remember that worship is not something we do, but when we gather on Sunday mornings, but rather we are worshipers who are to prioritize God in every aspect of our lives on a day-by-day basis so that when we gather on Sundays, when we gather on Wednesdays, we are able to truly and sincerely express what is already in our hearts through the different means of corporate worship. Sundays and Wednesdays is not a one-and-done thing throughout the week. This is the culmination. We come together and we meet with all of our brothers and sisters in Christ there in that beautiful worship center that God has provided for us. And we worship God through song and through fellowship, through the reading of the word, through the preaching of the word. When we do that, it's the culmination. It is to be the culmination of of our lives throughout the week. We've been coming before God on a daily basis. We have been giving him our every attitude, our our every word, our our every deed. And saying, God, I want to do this as an act of worship unto you. So where is your life? Are you with Paul swimming in the depths of the infinite wisdom and knowledge of God? Because your heart is overwhelmed with what has taken place on the cross? (coughs) Excuse me. Always comes back to the gospel. If you're here this morning, you're not swimming in these depths if you don't belong to Christ. If you're here this morning, you're looking at these verses saying, My God doesn't seem to be that big. I can, I can put my God right here. This is what I worship. This is my life. Listen, the reality is, is your God needs to be the God of the Bible. Because if he's not, you're going to meet him. One day you're going to come face to face with him. And he's going to judge you. And he's going to condemn your soul to a place that the Bible describes as hell. Where you are going to exist eternally under his judgment. His presence will be a terrifying presence for you. But if you come to this God, through the means which he has described in this wonderful book, through the means of the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, the one who came and was born and lived a perfect life on this planet, took on flesh, was human in every way that we are except without sin. But then this second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, went to the cross. And in those hours he was upon the cross, he bore the Father's wrath, taking upon himself in payment our sin that we deserve to pay the penalty for. And in those hours, he absorbed the fullness of the wrath of God for all of those who would come to Christ in repentance and faith. 
you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, you need to bow your heart in repentance to Christ. You need to turn from whatever you're trusting in. You need to turn from this world, from sin, from Satan. (laughs) And you need to turn to Jesus Christ. You need to believe in your heart who he is. He is both Savior and he is the Lord. And that his death on the cross was sufficient to pay the penalty for your sin and that he rose again and that he is waiting to execute his Father's will to come down and return for his church. Come to Christ. For those of us who know Christ, are your thoughts, your words, your actions reflecting that glorious gospel of our blessed God? that Paul is just exploding in this doxology with praise for. I hope so. We'll respond to him accordingly today. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this text. Father, take a, a feeble attempt to highlight the reality that Paul was proclaiming here in these verses and impress this truth upon our hearts, our minds, and our souls. Father, compel us by your magnificent, unsearchable, incomprehensible otherness and your ways and your judgments and your Wisdom and your knowledge compel us to worship you, to follow you, to live for you. Thank you for our time. In the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, amen.